Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that you would give us hearts that are humble and hungry to receive it. Jesus, your word promises that you will be with us to the end of the age. And God, we pray that you will give us ears to hear, eyes to see that you are good, you are Lord on high. Father, we thank you for this church. We ask that you will be forming us into the image of Christ, even as we hear these words. God, I pray that you captivate our hearts with your mission, that you help us to see that you are beautiful and our role is to, to further your name. So God, we pray that everyone here will be excited about the vision and the mission that God has called us on. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. All right. If you have a Bible, which some people might, you can turn to Matthew 28. It's also printed in your worship guide, but I always love it when people are able to turn in their Bible to the passage. So Matthew 28, and in just a minute we'll be reading the last four verses there, uh, 16 through 28. But before we do that, let me start us off like this. Most companies, in fact, I would venture to say if you work for a company or if you go to a school, the school or the company that you work for has a mission statement. Now, can you say what that mission statement is? I'm not sure, but the idea is that every company has a mission statement. And if you don't have a mission statement, then your company is aimless. You, you don't know what you're doing. You're gonna end up becoming too broad. Every person who works for your company, it should be, they should be working for your company in a way that furthers your mission statement. Even if they're just doing the smallest little task, it is enabling your mission to be fulfilled. Here are a few examples of mission statements that I found online. LinkedIn, connect the world's professionals to make them more productive and successful. Amazon's mission, this one's interesting, our mission is to be, the, is to be Earth's most customer-centric company. That's not the first thing I think of when I think of Amazon, but this is what unites Amazonians across teams and geographies. Isn't that like what Wonder Woman is in Amazon? Um, as we are all striving to delight our customers and make their lives easier, one innovative product, service, and idea at a time. It's an aspirational one. Harvard College's mission goes like this. The mission of Harvard College is to educate the citizens and citizen leaders for our society. We do this through our commitment to the transformative power of liberal arts and sciences education. And then one that I really enjoyed was IKEA whose mission is to frustrate every customer, past and future, with one hex wrench, one set of useless instructions, and names that are impossible to pronounce. Mission accomplished, Ikea. Mission accomplished. That's not really their mission, in case anybody's wondering. The employees of these organizations know that they're working toward that mission. So we talk about mission statements like this, but have you ever thought, wondered, what the mission of the church is. What is the mission of the church? Why are we all doing this thing? It seems like an easy question, but it's actually probably a lot more difficult to put in concise language than what it might seem at first. What is the mission of the church? Friends, if you're part of the church, just as if you're part of one of these companies, 
then it should be your mission to fulfill the mission of the church. That each and every one of us owns this mission. It should affect our each and every day. Most Christians, though, live without any sense of mission. Most Christians don't live lives that are full of mission, but they live lives that are passive and apathetic to the mission of God. Most Christians just let life come at them. They don't live with intentionality. We live like the rest of the world with our brunch plans. We live like the rest of the world with our career ambitions. It's like our Christianity is just a necklace that we wear, but we tuck it underneath our shirt. So it's something that's part of us, but it's not something that we, we live for. It's just something that we have individually. Most Christians don't live with a Christian sense of mission and purpose. And so today we're starting a new series called Gospel Intentionality. And the idea with this series is, what is the mission of the church? What am I here for? It actually answers a lot of really big questions if you think about it. Like, who am I? What am I here for? Why do I exist? What am I doing in life? As a member of the body of Christ, everything we, need, we do needs to be intentional if we're going to build the mission of God. And the idea is that we're ordinary people, but we live with a gospel intentionality. That's what it means to live in God's mission. We're ordinary people with a gospel intentionality. Intentionality is a key concept of love. I want you to think about intentionality with me for just a minute. When you're intentional, what's the opposite of that? Apathetic. Apathy is the opposite of intentionality. And can you apathetically love someone? I don't think so. I think that intentionality is given in love. Think about what it means to be an intentional spouse. If I'm an intentional spouse, if I'm an intentional husband, I'm becoming a student of my wife, learning the best ways to love her, learning how to speak her love language fluently, how to care for her, how to, how to treat her with respect and, and dignity and honor and worth and love. If I'm not intentional, I'm living apathetically toward her, and I'm not expressing love. And so if we want to be people who love God, we must think intentionally about the ways in which we love God and intentionally about the ways in which we live out his mission here on earth. And so through this series, we're going through five different uh, weeks of it. And this week we're starting it with we're being intentional. Just what does intentionality mean? Intentionality with one another. Next week we'll be talking about intentionality with our neighbors. In the third week we're going to be talking about intentionality in the world and then in society. And then finally in the workplace. What does it mean to live with gospel intentionality in all of those different places? And so this week we're looking at one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible. It's called the uh, we colloquially call it the Great Commission. It might have that in the side of your Bible in there. And it's one of these passages that's just a fantastic passage in the Scripture. So it's only four verses. This is what I'm going to ask you to do out of reverence to the written word of the Lord. Let's stand and read it together. Only four verses here. Read with me. Matthew 28, verse 16 through 20. When I, when I get done, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, and you will respond by saying thanks be to God. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. 
And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. The big idea here from this passage, intentionally help religious and irreligious people become gospel people. That is the mission that he sends us on. And I have three points for us. First point is why this is one of the most important things that Jesus ever said. I think that this passage is one of the most important things that Jesus ever said. And I want to explain to you why I think that is true. The second point is the mission, of Jesus, the, the mission that Jesus calls every follower to. And the final promise, point number three, a final promise from Jesus that makes it possible. All right, first, why is this one of the most important things that Jesus ever said? So I think that this is one of the most important things that he said for a lot of different reasons. First of all, this passage, this Great Commission, it's cited in three of the different gospel accounts. So there's four biographies of Jesus, and a lot of times they overlap with one another, but not always. And if something shows up in one of the biography accounts more than once, it's, more, it's important. And if it shows up three times, that's actually pretty rare. There's not many occasions of things that show up in all three different gospel accounts. And so this is one of those things that shows up in three different gospel accounts. So secondly, these are the last words that show up in the book of Matthew. These are the very last words that show up in the book of Matthew. Matthew concludes his biography with the reader receiving this and now statement. And now this is what we have, and this is what comes up next, and this is what you're to do. It's like this next steps for us. Thirdly, this is pretty much all that Matthew has to say about Jesus after he's resurrected. So after Jesus is resurrected, this is pretty much all that happens in this entire biography, is that he sends his disciples on this mission. It's a really important thing. He's risen from the dead. What does he come back from the dead to say? You know, when you expect someone to have something to say, he comes back with this to say. He has this great commission. He has this mission that he wants to send us on. And fourth, the author puts all these clues in the text itself that it's really important. If you look at verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Now you might say 11 disciples. I thought there were 12. Remember, this is post-resurrection. So Judas no longer qualifies as a disciple at this point. So the 11 disciples showed up and to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And, and this is some symbolism, but the Bible puts important things on top of mountains all the time. You have the Sermon on the Mount. You have Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were received. You have the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is revealed to two of his disciples as the Son of God. It's an important thing. It was happening on the mountain. And then verse 17 I find this to be one of the, the most astounding parts of this passage. It says, and when they saw him, what did they do? They worshipped him. And then it says, but some doubted. Isn't that a shocking statement? But some doubted. These men followed Jesus for years. Jesus predicted, I will be crucified. Jesus said, I will raise from the dead. And here he is, he's doing the thing that he said he was going to do, and some are still doubting. 
It was a miraculous thing that Jesus did. I think it's a cool thing that the Bible includes this little detail and some doubt it. First of all, if it wasn't true, why would they ever include this? If you're just making this whole thing up, why would you ever say, and some doubt it? You wouldn't. You would say, and everyone believed everything he ever had to say after that. That's how the story goes if it's not true. <laughs> if, if you're just making up the story, you would make up a better story. But also, I love how the Bible makes room for doubt in our Christian belief. You see, these guys, they're worshiping Jesus. They're fully there. They're committed to him. Yet some doubt it. Friends, you cannot expect to be completely without doubt in your life whatsoever. These people were sitting at the foot of Jesus. You might say, if only Jesus would come down and reveal himself, I wouldn't doubt. That's not true. These people, seeing the resurrected Jesus, still doubting and still worshiping at the same time. Friends, your, your questions, your doubts, they're welcome here. They're welcome here. We're people that want to work through those things with you. We believe that the, that the Bible gives us real answers, and that God has really revealed himself to us. And so we work through our doubts together. That, that's what God calls us to. Verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This man's in charge. This is the Messiah. He's saying all authority is made. You know what he's saying? He's saying, look, guys, I'm in charge. He's, it's like that meme of, uh, with the Tom Hanks movie of the, the guy who takes over. It's like, I'm in charge now. All right. Jesus is looking at him and he's saying, I'm in charge. I'm the boss here. And you don't say, look, I'm in charge, unless what you have to say next is really important. That's like, you want people to listen to what you have, said, what you have to say next. These are orders from the king. And this is all that he says. It's the mission that Jesus calls every follower to. Second point. This is all that he says. He says, go therefore. I'm in charge. Go therefore and make disciples. Of who? Of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Just let the weight of that sink in for you for just a minute. That Jesus is entrusting the work of making disciples of all nations, the work of the mission of God, to these knuckleheads who are doubting him, who abandoned him as he was being crucified, all but one abandoned him as he was being crucified, he shows up the first time that they see him, he says, I trust you. You abandoned me, I still trust you. And what do I trust you to do? But the most important thing that there is in the world left to do, that's what I trust you with. I know you're a knucklehead. I still trust you. That's what Jesus is saying here. And not only do I trust you, but I'm going to trust you with this important thing. When I was five years old, I my aunt let me hold her very nice snow globe and she said don't drop it and i held it for all of three seconds before dropping it and breaking it everywhere but yet my aunt still let me hold snow globes in the future because she said hey you messed it up but i still trust you i love you and she's she's gonna trust me that's how jesus treats us oftentimes and he has these four commands in this mission he he, he lists out four different verbs here it's go make disciples, baptizing, and teaching. And even though go comes first, the only real verb here when you look at the Greek 
is the word make disciples. The rest are kind of participles that work on um, explaining what making disciples is. If you, you know, just take my word for it here. The, this, this is how it's uh, grammatically set up. So that's the way that it works. And so he's telling them to do these, these, these four things. Jesus is talking to his disciples. These are the, the 11 disciples right now. And he's telling them to go multiply themselves. Go make more disciples. And friends, that's the type of church we want to be. We want to be a church that makes disciples who make disciples. Whether you're a custodian or a researcher or a teacher or you have a high-paying job or a low-paying job, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a kid, you are called to this mission. This is the mission that you live for, to make disciples of all nations, wherever you are and with whatever you're doing. This is what Jesus is calling us to. And to do it everywhere, all nations. We want everyone, everywhere to experience the gospel. I know that can sound sometimes like Christian imperialism, right? Like we want to transform everyone. We want everyone to turn to our religion. But friends, it's not Christian imperialism. It's the farthest thing from it. Imperialism is where one nation goes and takes over another nation by force. This is more like us going and saying, good news, you can be free. We're not taking over. We're announcing a message of freedom. And that's the message that God has called us to. We're to share good news. And so I want to look at these four things about how Jesus calls us to make disciples. These three ways that God calls us to make disciples. First, he tells us to go. Go and make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The disciples are being sent on mission. When you're on mission, when you're being sent on a mission, you live intentionally. You have something to do. If we were all to pick up and move to another city, if God was to say, hey, everyone here at this church gathering, you are to move to Los Angeles to be an intentional church to make disciples. Well, what would we do? We would think really strategically. How can we make disciples in this area? How are we going to reach our neighbors? But friends, I think that we get complacent because this is something that we're doing as we live our normal life. But this is what God has called us to do, to make disciples. He's sent us. This is something about living intentionally, to be sent like this. In our family, my wife is the one that makes the grocery list. And I'm the one who is sent with the grocery list to intentionally shop for those groceries. When I walk into the grocery store, I have a mission to complete, to satisfy. And all I'm doing, I'm living intentionally to grab only what's on that list. I'm not grabbing willy-nilly whatever I want to grab there. Because then she wouldn't be able to, like we wouldn't, we both cook a little bit, she probably cooks a little bit more than I do. Uh, she wouldn't be able to make any of the things that she had planned out for the week. And so usually I come home with exactly what she sent me with, plus like four boxes of cookies, because I have a problem. To live as someone who is sent is to live intentionally. Jesus is sending his disciples on this mission. And he says go, because the idea is that this is no longer a message just for the Israelite people, but it's a message for all nations, all people. So he's telling them, get out of town, go, go make disciples of all people. And friends, that includes people in Boston. And I know that we hear go and we think about missions, we think about sending people different places, but other people are sending people here. They're, they're being sent here to live intentionally for Jesus in this location. And so what does it look like for us to live on mission here? The best way for us to go 
might be actually to stay. Because the reality is, is that God needs to build his church here. And one of the best ways for God to build a church is through stability. We need some people to stay in this area to commit to raise their families in Boston, to see the mission of God move forward here. Boston is one of the least reached places in the United States. But friends, if God were to start a revival in Boston, if he were to send his Holy Spirit to do something special here, it would have ripple effects all across the world. One out of every five world leaders had studied in Boston at one point. They have that, we have that opportunity to engage leaders all over the world with the good news of Jesus. While they're here, it's an important mission that God has sent us with. God not only sends us to go, but he also sends us to baptize. He calls us to baptize. It says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is really important. It's something that we celebrate here and that we're, we're thankful for. We baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do it at the marking to, of the beginning of the Christian life. And so if you haven't been baptized since you became a Christian, like I encourage you to respond to God in that way. But also, what does baptism represent? You know, last time we got together here, we celebrated a baptism. And one of the things I invited everyone to do is raise their hand because we're going to baptize as a community. This is something we're all going to do together this time. Because when we baptize someone, we're welcoming a new child of God into the family of God. And so what he's saying is, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And as we're baptizing them, they're being brought into the family of God. They're being brought into the family of God. You cannot make disciples without a family. You need a church family. We need each other. That's why we're starting our community groups back up so that we can have these real-life interactions and, and conversations and community and family. In the family of God, I am able to care and be cared for, to love and be loved, forgive and be forgiven, to rebuke and be rebuked, to encourage and be encouraged. And the last thing that Jesus calls us to do as we make disciples is to teach. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. How do we do this? How does Jesus call us to teach? When you think about teaching within the context of the local church, you usually probably think about preaching first, what I'm doing right now. But I think that it's something that God has called all people to do. All of his followers are called to make disciples, not just me. But all of his followers are called to make disciples and to teach. And to teach. And how do we do that? Well, you can look at the ministry of Jesus. There's sometimes when he gave sermons, for sure. But he also taught his, his disciples a lot as he met with sick people and cared for them. As they walked along the road and saw things happening, he would explain what's happening, what's happening around him. As he answered questions, he was teaching. All these different ways that Jesus intentionally taught. We teach as we live ordinary lives with gospel intentionality. We invite others into our life, and we talk about what God has done for us. When you do that, you're exercising this thing we call influence. And influence is one of the best ways for adults to be taught. Most things, when you become an adult, is better caught than taught explicitly. 
And so as you live a Christian life, where you talk about what the Lord's done in your life, where you share your prayer requests, where you're vulnerable and transparent, where you're caring and loving, these things are contagious. God calls us to live influential, contagiously loving lives for the glory of God. One of the best ways that you can live with gospel intentionality is to be a curious listener, a question asker, and a truth speaker. And I'm not talking about truth of confrontation always, but I'm talking about truth of encouragement. Just giving someone a piece of the good news of Jesus, encouraging them, reminding them of of God's truth. Ask yourself today, how can God use me to intentionally make disciples? How can God use me to live on his mission? to make religious and irreligious people into gospel people? How can he use me in the life of someone else? To live for the mission of God is to view every relationship you have as an opportunity from the Lord to influence someone toward Jesus. To disciple is to leverage your influence to share that infectious love with Jesus. A a good way to think about discipleship is to think about discipleship as friendship with a vision. It's not friendship with with an agenda, but friendship with a vision. It means you see someone and you you want them to experience the love of God. You want them to experience the love of Jesus in a richer and more full way, as you have experienced it, and as you want to continue to experience it in a richer and full way. How can I encourage this person with this good news? And Jesus ends with this final promise that makes all of this possible. So this is a big mission. When I think about the Great Commission, a lot of times what I feel, honestly, is like guilt. (laughs) Like I'm not doing enough. It makes me feel exhausted. It's such an exciting mission. I'm excited about what God wants to do with the world. I'm excited about sharing Jesus because I've experienced Jesus in a real way. But it's also this exhausting mission. It's so much more comfortable to live apathetically than intentionally. But Jesus gives us this final promise that makes all of this worth it and possible. Because at the end of the Great Commission, what does he say? He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus has promised to be with us always, church. We live out the mission to make disciples because we have experienced the presence of the Lord. We've experienced Jesus being with us. And so as you go forward to live intentionally, you might experience some fear. You might experience some loneliness. If you're living for the mission of God, you're going to be swimming upstream at times. You're going to feel different. You're going to have a different mission and vision than some of the people around you. It can be a lonely way to go. You can feel pressed on all sides. You might feel abandoned. You might feel, as the Apostle Paul describes, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Some of your relationships might get a little awkward. It might be easy to feel burnt out. There will be times you feel alone, but Jesus knows this. He knows this as he calls us on this mission. And what does he do? What promise does he give us that makes it all worth it and, and possible? He gives us the promise that he'll be with us. As you feel that loneliness, 
to endeavor in the mission of God, know that Jesus is right there beside you. That he cares for you. He's never going to leave you. That he's compassionate. He's gentle. He's kind. We need to drink from this presence of God. I love the way that G.K. Beale says this in one of his books. He says, when the source of our commitment to God's mission is located only in the backwaters of our idealism, what we should be doing, then we can burn out and become better, which is what I've experienced, and I know many of us have experienced as we think about the mission of God. Many idealistically plunge headlong into a commitment a sacrificial commitment to the poor or unreached or hurting, compelled by brokenness over their plight. But the resources of that idealism run dry when tested by the challenges of costly obedience. However, when our resources run dry, we drink more fully and deeply from the abundance of life found in God's presence. Our God gives joy and strength to endure, church. The life that we find in God's presence is more than enough to overcome every challenge for the mission God has placed before us. We have to be reminded of God's nearness as we endeavor to live a gospel intentional life. He sent us on this mission. It's a big mission. It's an intimidating one, but he's always with us and will never forsake us. One of the ways that we remember Jesus' nearness is through a meal that we practice. If you're a believer here today, if you consider yourself to following Jesus, we invite you to participate in this. And, and Jesus is with us in a real way as we respond to him. And we are reminded that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. So let's pray, church, as we prepare to receive communion. God, as we prepare to receive this meal, we ask that you'll be glorified in it, that we might be able to enjoy it, and be reminded of your nearness. God, you are near to us now. We pray that you give us that kind of comfort and support, that we might enjoy your presence today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.